When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The Battle of Salamanca was fought in Spain on the 22nd of July, 1812, during the Peninsular War, and it pitted Lieutenant General Arthur Wellesley, the future Duke of Wellington, against the French military master, Marshal Marmont. Not to give away the ending, as it's no easy fight, but the battle defined Wellington's reputation as a defensive general and shattered French dominance on the Iberian Peninsula. To take us step-by-step through this history, a history of one of Wellington's greatest battles, we have our resident Napoleonic-era expert, Dr. Zach White, back on the podcast. Zach reveals how Wellington had been seeking an advantageous opportunity to engage Marmont for a while, and how after years of war, the beginning of 1812 saw Wellington take the offensive into Spain. Here is the ever-brilliant Zach White on the Battle of Salamanca. Enjoy. Hi, Zach. Welcome back to the Warfare Podcast. How are you doing? Hi, James. Yeah, I'm well, thank you. Keeping very busy, but it's nice to be back and nice to be spending an hour just kind of nerding out about some Wellington stuff. Well, I could never be at your levels of this, but I'm an aspiring nerd about Wellington, about the Napoleonic era, and most specifically about Waterloo, because I've just come back from the battlefield and we've had breaking news, rewriting the history of that period. And this is that the second body ever has been found from the Battle of Waterloo. And I I was down by that graveside, and it really is an emotional sight. The body has been placed, well, I'm not sure. I wonder if it's been thrown into a pit near to the hospital at Mont-Saint-Jean, maybe someone who's died on the operating table. And they're there lined up against these horses that are next to them. And each horse looks like it's been shot in the head, probably led into the pit and shot in the head probably injured during that battle. What do you make of this? It's an odd mixture of emotions, isn't it? Because on the one hand, there's that sort of twinge of excitement, because as you say, this is rare. This is only the second time we've found a soldier from the Waterloo battlefield, or at least a presumed soldier. We have to be clear that at this stage, investigations are still ongoing. In fact, as we record, they're finishing off the excavation process, and we don't have a clear indication of cause of death. But the scope for us to understand so much more about the impact of war on these men's lives, if this does turn out to be a soldier, is vast. You know, not only basic things like 
where did this person come from? What caused their death? But things like illnesses caused by campaigning will leave a mark on the bones. Nutritional deficiencies, this is a big area, actually. We know that the nutritional content of the rations that the Wellington soldiers was meant to receive wasn't sufficient for the tasks that they were performing. And yet we also know that on top of that, they weren't getting those rations in the first place. That's part of the reason that they're plundering so prolifically. So what does that do to their bodies? And so that's those and other questions are really kind of curious. And there's a great opportunity here to start to unlock some of those. But for all that we can kind of look at this and go, what a great opportunity. I would defy anybody to look at that set of remains and not just be hit by how profoundly sad this is. You're looking at, as far as we're aware, a victim of war. And as you say, there is this sense from the surrounding archaeology of their body just being discarded. It's pretty tragic. We think that one of the leg bones may have been discarded on top of this guy's body. So, you know, that, as you say, leans us towards thinking, you know, this may have been a casualty from the field hospital that was established at Mont-Saint-Jean, both during and after the battle. So yeah, I mean, in one sense, fantastic. In another sense, deeply sad. And then if I kind of stick my charity hat on, because I run a, a charity kind of dedicated to exactly this kind of issue, there's this big question of what next? What happens to this individual? Sure, an investigation now needs to be carried out to understand these remains. But then what happens to them? Do they go on display in a museum? We have precedent for that. The last guy that was found was stuck. He's in a glass case in the Memorial 1815 Museum on the battlefield. Or as a veteran, do we treat him in the same way that we do for soldiers of conflicts 100 years later, i.e. the Great War? And do we give this person a dignified burial? And that's the big ethical question that nobody has an answer to. And that's where my charity comes in, because it tries to encourage and create opportunities to make that burial happen so that that person can have that marked place in the earth that is theirs for eternity, but at the same time enable other organisations and other stakeholders here to have their say and enable them to achieve some educational benefit out of this discovery at the same time. So it's a complex mix where the kind of emotional needs to meet the sort of harsher realpolitik, if you will, of the discussions that go on around these people's remains. Well, while I was down there and I was talking with the, the lead archaeologist, Professor Tony Pollard, and he appeared to share your sentiment, Zach. I think full military honours was the uh, the phrase he used. So let's see how this develops. We'll get you back on to talk about this as the history does unfold. But today we're going back a few years before the Battle of Waterloo to a battle that maybe not as many people have, have heard of, and this is the Battle of Salamanca. So take us back those few years, take us to 1812, and tell me why is Wellington fighting the French in Spain at the Battle of Salamanca? Yeah, uh, I mean, how long have you got? Um, we could do a whole podcast on how we get, we could do a whole series of podcasts on how we get here. And people who've listened to me before will know that I do love to use up all of the air in the room with lengthy explanations. So I'll try and be concise for you before our listeners run away screaming. You have to take it back to the origins of this very specific kind of localised conflict that's happening in the region. It's called the Peninsula War, and it rages and ebbs and flows across Portugal, Spain and southern France from 1808 all the way through to 1814. So it takes up a good chunk of the last years before Napoleon's first abdication. Waterloo in 1815 is a result of Napoleon coming back after that first abdication. So that's a whole other story. 
So this is the first attempt, if you like, to, to get rid of him. This is the original album, and it's a hell of a long album. So where does it all start? Well, really, it doesn't actually start in Spain or Portugal or southern France, and it doesn't start in 1808. It starts in 1807, when Napoleon manages to secure peace with Russia. He manages to secure a peace treaty at a place called Tilsit, and he thinks he's done a pretty good job of kind of schmoozing with the Russian Tsar. thinks he's been deeply, deeply impressive as a, a kind of figure of authority and gets most of what he wants. And so he's managed to secure peace with every nation in Europe, apart from one, Britain. And he can't reach Britain because Britain, the island fortress, protected by the English Channel, and particularly after the ascendancy of the Royal Navy in the wake of Trafalgar, Napoleon doesn't have the means to reach Britain and launch that invasion. So he needs another way to bring Britain to heel. And his solution is really quite clever and quite simple. Close all ports on the European mainland to British shipping. Regardless of which nation, regardless of whether or not they're allied to Napoleon or to Britain, every single nation is told to close its ports to British shipping. It's a hugely, hugely grandiose scheme, which gives you a kind of sense of just how inflated a sense of self Napoleon has at this point, that he thinks he can dictate the economic policy of the entire continent of Europe. I mean, that is an ego. That is some power trip writ large. Is he successful in this? You, you say this is a, you know, quite a, uh, an ingenious, simple move. Doesn't sound simple, Zach. To be honest, the thing that makes it work is that Napoleon's got the French army and the French army is the dominant military force on the European continent. Everybody knows it. He's defeated the Austrians. So all of these different nations just say, yes, Napoleon, of course, Napoleon. They don't have a huge amount of choice. He's defeated the Austrians, the Prussians, the Russians. All of those three are the big military forces in Europe prior to Napoleon coming to power. And the fact that he's managed to inflict these blistering defeats on these nations means that the smaller nations, with their far smaller armies, don't have a huge amount of choice. He's also kind of restructured the balance of power in Europe, so that it's heavily kind of leaning in his favour. But there is some dissent, and the first kind of echo of that dissent comes in Portugal. Portugal is not allied to Napoleon. It's an independent nation. And when it's told that it can no longer decide its own foreign policy and its own economic policy, despite being an independent nation, unsurprisingly, they turn around and tell Napoleon politely what he can do with his suggestion of closing all their ports to British trade. Not least because Portugal has a long association with Britain by this point. And actually, their, their economy is quite heavily dependent on British trade. So it really doesn't suit them. Napoleon does what you'd kind of anticipate. He plays his my army's bigger than yours card and eventually it works. He manages to move a, a force through Spain, which is allied to him at this point in time. So that's no great challenge. And the Portuguese go, all right then, we can see the writing on the wall. We'll acquiesce to your demands. We'll close our ports to British trade and we'll arrest uh, British citizens resident in Portugal. The trouble is... This is Napoleon we're talking about, and he just invades anyway. And it doesn't take much. By the end of 1807, Portugal is back under French control. So phase one, sorted. You know, that there's no sign of a, a long, protracted conflict that's going to come out of this. But then fast forward to 1808, where in Spain, there's a bit of a crisis. There's a, a disagreement between 
the king, Charles IV, and his son, Ferdinand VII, the, the heir apparent. And Napoleon wades in on this and says, look, this is not good enough. You can't have this unseemly spat between a monarch and his heir. Tell you what, why don't you come to France? We'll sit down and we'll sort it out. And we'll hug it out. Uh, I, I might be kind of dumbing things down ever so slightly there, but this is... What's hug it out in French, Zach? Um, my <laughs> French isn't good enough for that, I, I hate to tell you. But this is Napoleon. He never got anywhere by being huggy and cuddly and, and all the rest of it. What he does is he basically arrests them and tells them, you're going to abdicate. And instead, my brother Joseph is going to rule Spain and we're going to carry out a series of reforms in the country. Unsurprisingly, the Spanish people don't take too kindly to this. There's a revolt in Madrid called the Dos de Mayo Uprising. The guy on the ground representing Napoleon, a guy called Marshal Murat, who, bless him, wasn't the brightest button in the box, decides to carry out a massive crackdown when some French soldiers are killed and wounded in this riot, basically says that any French blood spilt will be repaid many times over, is as good as his word. There are a series of executions the following day, known as the Tres de Mayo, the 3rd of May. Um, and this kind of kicks the embers of this unrest across Spain and starts these new fires all across the country. To speed up this very lengthy story, what effectively happens is the Spanish appeal to Britain for support. They've just been stabbed in the back by their own ally, France. So now it's a case of, well, my enemy's enemy is my friend. They reach out to the British. What they really want is weapons and money. What they get is an army under the command of Sir Arthur Wellesley. He lands in Portugal initially. There's a series of campaigns that eventually leads us to a stalemate on the Spanish-Portuguese border between 1811 and 1812. Very early in 1812, Wellington breaks that stalemate. He manages to take two border fortresses, those of Theodore Rodrigo and Badajoz, and that's key because those two fortresses guard the main roads into Spain. So for the first time in years, the first time since 1809, when he'd fought a battle at Talavera, he's able to take the fight to the French in the heart of Spain. And that's massive because there are a quarter of a million men in Spain. He's got a massive task ahead of him, but he can now break out of what's effectively become a kind of safe zone behind him in Portugal. Wow. Okay. So you're leading us through to the Battle of Salamanca itself. Wellington is now in Spain. He's managed to break through. As I've, I've read through a bit of the historiography, there's this reference to kind of one mistake that happens on the 22nd July 1812. Is it that, that border post? Is that the mistake? No. So what's happened in the weeks before the Battle of Salamanca is there's been this Salamanca campaign, which goes on for about a month. Wellington organises, bear in mind I said, you know, quarter of a million men in Spain. That's a big headache for Wellington, just to start off with. He organises a series of diversions across the entire region. So the, the Army of the North is distracted by a series of, of naval landings that keeps 48,000 men tied up, trying to march up and down the coast faster than a ship can sail. So you've literally got this kind of image of, of the French running around like headless chickens in the north of Spain that entire summer. In the east, 60,000 men. Again, another force that could have been detached and used to wipe his army off the face of the earth. But they're kept busy by a series of landings that are being planned to open up a second front against the French. In the south, you've got another army, an army of 24,000, that's busy besieging Cadiz. And there are some demonstrations. He detaches part of his force and uses that to kind of keep them busy and keep them contained. And so he tackles the last big force, 
which is 50,000 men under a guy called Marshal Auguste Marmont. Marmont is one of the most recent of Napoleon's marshals. He's often quite denigrated these days, partly because he screws up at Salamanca. It's not a massive mistake, but we'll come to that in just a moment. And partly because in 1814, he surrenders Paris to the Allies and makes his entire unit not desert, but surrender en masse. The reason being that by 1814, he's seen that the game's up and he's not up for fighting anymore. He makes all of his men give up the fight. And that's seen as a big portrayal of Napoleon. And so the verb raguser in France, which means betray, comes from marmont. So if you betray somebody in French, you are quite literally doing a marmont. That's basically what it comes down to. So Wellington advances from the border fortresses to Salamanca over the course of late June into early July. Marmont pulls back because he's seen what happens when Wellington sits on a ridge. What he decides is that there is no point in attacking Wellington on ground that he chooses. So when Wellington stands and offers him a battle, Marmont goes, nah, we've seen this before. Not falling for that one. And why is this that? What does Wellington do when he sits on a ridge? Wellington is a master of the defensive position. He is not a defensive general. Let me just throw that one out there because everyone loves to go, oh, all that Wellington can do is sit on a ridge and defend it. Not so, and we're going to see why at Salamanca, because Salamanca is one of those moments where the French really sit up and pay attention to just how dangerous Wellington is. But Wellington's very good at what's known as the reverse slope technique. So he takes his force and puts the bulk of them on the other side of the ridge, in the sort of the zone that you can't see when you're looking at it from the attacker's position. Why would you do that? Well, two reasons. One, intelligence. If you hide your battle formation from the enemy, it's much harder for them to work out what's the weak point, where are they going to attack. The other reason, really good for sheltering your men against artillery fire. The French have an advantage when it comes to artillery, particularly numerically, but also in terms of the calibre of shot. They're firing these heavier uh, projectiles, 12-pounders. The British, they max out at the 9-pounder. So he's kind of evening the odds on that score. And the net result is that when the French advance, they don't really know what's facing them until the last minute when they get over the crest of the hill, and then they're facing a series of volleys and a bayonet charge, and they're sent reeling. And Wellington perfects this technique and uses it time and time again, in part because he's a master of using the terrain and picking those good locations. So Marmont and the French as a whole, they've learned from this. They go, yeah, we, we just, we're not going to attack him on ground of his own choosing. It's just not the smart thing to do. And so what you see over the course of this campaign is a series of really clever, really delicate manoeuvres that Marmont gradually is able to use to gain the upper hand. He outfoxes Wellington earlier in July, where he launched this kind of feint across a river and then marches a couple of divisions that he's used in that feint, sends them back across the river, launches his main army in another direction. Wellington ends up kind of moving from pillar to post, not knowing what the hell's happening, nearly gets captured on one occasion just about manages to stabilise his force. Marmont, a bit disappointed because he thought he had the upper hand, but keeps his cool, sticks to his game plan, don't attack Wellington when he picks a position to defend, and he basically just tries to outflank Wellington. Keep turning that flank, shepherd him back to the Portuguese border, and then you've contained him again. He doesn't need to defeat Wellington in the open field, he just needs to keep him pushed back, maintain the equilibrium in Spain. And then he's done his job. And he gets seriously close. He's doing that on the 22nd of July, 1812, just south of Salamanca. He starts to move his men in a kind of arcing manoeuvre around the bottom of Wellington's force. 
Wellington accepts that. He's actually moving men to start to be in a position to cover a retreat that might be necessary when this tiny little error, and it's a small error, in front of most generals, it wouldn't have even mattered. But this error nonetheless is made. Two of the French divisions march just a little bit too far, a little bit too fast. They just outstrip their support. And so you've got these two fairly isolated French divisions that with a simple order and with maybe 20, 30 minutes of marching, that could all have been rectified. It's not a big mistake. In front of Wellington, though, it proves to be absolutely fatal. And we see a battle that has been described in admittedly an exaggerated fashion as the defeat of 40,000 men in 40 minutes. month on God Medieval from History Hit, I'll be asking who really were the Vikings? How did they become so successful in spreading across northern Europe and beyond from the late 8th to the 11th centuries? What are the stories we tell about them and what legacy did they leave behind for us today? I'm Dr Kat Jarman and throughout September I'll be examining the big questions about the Vikings with a host of experts and answering all of your burning questions about the Viking Age as well. So, for everything you always wanted to know about the Vikings, subscribe to Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Wow, the defeat of 40,000 men in probably less time than this podcast is going to run. So tell us, is that true? How does this start to play out? How does, actually, this is something that's always baffled me. Today we think of intelligence on the battlefield as being quite an easy thing to obtain. You've got your drones in the sky, your air power, you know, you've got your scouts on the ground who are seeing what's going on. 
How on earth does Wellington have such good situational awareness that he can see such a tiny error, a small mistake, happening in what is tantamount to a fraction of a second in the terms of the broader scale of a campaign, and to really make the most of it, to capitalise on that, so it becomes a battle-winning move? There's a lot to unpack there. So let's start with the intelligence thing. And there are actually two strands to that. So macro intelligence and immediate intelligence, as I'll describe them as. Macro intelligence is what are the French across Spain doing and where are different forces and what are the communications going on between them so that he can try and work out their plans. Wellington has a massive, monumental advantage over the French because of the Spanish guerrillas, who, if ever you're going to talk about the Peninsula War, you have to discuss. These are Spanish individuals, some of them patriots, some of them really not patriots. Some of them are just brigands who are looking for an opportunity to rob somebody, kick somebody's head in, make a fast buck and live the high life. Others are far more devoted to the Spanish cause. You know, this idea that Spain is an occupied nation that needs to be defended and the guerrillas engage in this bloody counterinsurgency operation. The term guerrilla warfare comes from the Spanish guerrilla, the little war that comes from this conflict. And the reason that the guerrillas are so key to the intelligence that Wellington receives at a macro level is because the French are obviously sending messages between different units and different commanders. And (laughs) the trouble for the French is that if they just send the messenger, the messenger, more often than not, gets intercepted by the guerrilla. So unless you're sending an entire cavalry brigade to defend every single message, then this intelligence, these vital messages are going to end up getting captured. The French end up in a position where they send multiple versions of the same letter. And all of those versions invariably end up back in Wellington's lap because the guerrillas capture them. They execute the messengers because that campaign that they conduct is utterly bloody and you see uh, reprisal and counter-reprisal and it's, it's horrific what happens. But the net result for Wellington is that these messages land in his lap. Somebody breaks the French codes, a guy called Scoville, and he's able to work out exactly what the French are planning to do because this information is just being fed to him constantly. And the French have no line of communication, which is vital to making sure that you can keep in contact with your troops and make sure that you're manoeuvring across the campaign in a coordinated fashion. So this is a, a double win for Wellington. It is. It's also made even worse by the fact that there's massive, massive rivalry between the different French commanders in Spain. And they're all trying to engage in this game of one-upmanship And none of them really wants to support the other. And all of that actually changes post-Salamanca, where they really have to wake up and smell the coffee and realise that there's a bigger problem that isn't just on their doorstep. It's right there in the room with them in the form of Wellington. But yet it's a catastrophic problem for the French. It's one of the fundamental reasons why they lose this war. A quarter of a million men basically rendered not impotent, but seriously handicapped in terms of their ability to apply the pressure that they could have done. So that's the macro level. At the micro level, this is about observation. It's about cavalry patrol. It's it's line of sight uh, with occasional interrogation of locals to try and get a sense of, so did a French force pass through this village and how long ago and, and how many men, how many horses, all of that kind of thing. What we're talking about at Salamanca is line of sight. So the British are in a kind of L shape defending a series of heights around a position called the Arapiles, Los Arapiles, 
I believe is the Spanish pronunciation. And Wellington occupies a very compact position. He's got divisions. He's always got kind of two lines of divisions here to protect him. He's got another one out on his uh, far right flank, which is designed to be his covering force that I was talking about. He's moved it from his extreme left flank to his extreme right flank in anticipation. But this shows you a guy who has his force in a really kind of tight, compact nature, ready to do precisely what he wants when he wants. And one of his aides, whilst in fact the story goes that they're having lunch, apparently he was eating chicken at the time, which seems to be a common thing. During the Battle of Borodino, it's said that one of the Russian commanders was eating fried chicken. I, I don't know quite what it is about commanders during this period and, and chicken. Anyhow, one of his aides says to Wellington, look, we've, we've got a situation here. Wellington grabs a, a spyglass, checks it, um, and supposedly says, by God, that'll do. Throws the chicken leg over his shoulder. Waste of perfectly good food. Absolutely atrocious. And then, and this gives you a measure of the guy, both as control freak and somebody who loves to make sure that the commands are followed to the letter, jumps on his horse and rides in person to that division on the extreme right flank and says, this is exactly what I want you to do, where I want you to attack, how I want you to do it, go make it happen. And that's exactly what happens. He talks to a guy who just so happens to be his brother-in-law, a guy called Ned Packenham, who's the brother of his wife, of Wellington's wife, Kitty Packenham. Ned, in rather grand fashion, goes, I will, my lord, and promptly does. So two divisions end up going in this attack, and they attack in echelon. So the third division moves first, and it moves forward and then strikes flat into the head of this advancing French formation. So these two divisions, under the commands of guys called Thermia and McCune, third division goes and hits Thomia's division flat in the face, which means it has to advance south and then pivot so that it's facing west and then hit the French formation. Thomia's division doesn't know what hits them. Genuinely, they're still in column. They haven't deployed into battle formation because by the time they see the British and realise what the heck's happening, it's already way, way too late. So British musketry does what it does best, uh, hammers this formation as it's trying to kind of shake itself into some kind of battle line. And just at the point that they're breaking, in sweeps British heavy cavalry. Some of the best cavalry in the world, and unquestionably, some of this worst lead. They charge in and they shatter Thomier's division. It's pretty much wiped out. The casualty figures are horrific. Something like 25% dead alone in a formation of 4,000 men. So we're talking huge losses. And then they charge on the British cavalry. They're not done yet. And this is the trouble with British cavalry. Once it's bloods up, it travels too far, too fast. You've seen it for yourself at yes, Waterloo. absolutely. And so they end up actually riding into McCune's division, that second French division that had become isolated. But McCune's division, they've had a little bit more time to think. They can hear what's happening to Thermia's division and they can see Wellington's 5th Division, which is the one that's been sent to deal with them. And so they shake themselves into a battle line. But just as they're engaging in that firefight, they then get swamped by what's left of the British heavy cavalry. And they get shattered. And so what you have is a situation where, in this case, it's probably about 8,000 men defeated in 40 minutes. But in the space of far less than an hour, you have two entire French divisions completely shattered, taken off of the table, left running for their lives. And in the process, actually, 
a couple of eagles are captured, though not in the kind of glorious circumstances that you might expect. So is, is that it? Is that simple as? This is must be one of Wellington's easiest victories. Oh, no. This is where it gets a little bit more interesting. And this is where actually you can gain a little bit more respect for Wellington's game plan here, because he doesn't have it all his way. Sure, the French left wing has been completely routed. There's nothing left of it. But it's not over yet. There are still two other sections of this battlefield, a centre and a right flank. Wellington is not one to sit by idly. He sends in another division to attack in the centre of the battlefield. But this is where it goes wrong. He sends in what is numerically his weakest division, the 4th Division. These are troops that have suffered horrifically in the breaches of Theodore Rodrigo, particularly Badahoff. And as a result of that, the position that they are faced in, they find themselves actually being flanked. So I talked earlier about the Arapas or the Arapiles. These are two kind of knolls of high ground. The British occupied the lesser one. The French, however, occupied the greater one. And that greater Arapile dominates all of the centre of the battlefield. It actually acts as a pivot. It's that point that Marmot has used to swing his army around and start to achieve that outflanking manoeuvre because he can use that as an anchor point and hold Wellington in position there and then move his men forward. So you can see that it was already crucial in the story of the campaign before Wellington sends in the 4th Division to attack the French centre. Because they, the French have managed to get artillery on that position, that artillery fire hammers the 4th Division. The French then counterattack and they break the 4th Division. So one of Wellington's divisions has now been broken. So he's got success on the right flank, but he's got a crisis in the centre. But it's not that big a deal. Because remember what I said earlier, he's got multiple lines. Wellington's a man who kind of plans for different eventualities. And in this case, he's kept his army compact so that it gives him options. And he has a unit that's just sitting right behind 4th Division, acting as a reserve, should it be needed. He just moves them forward. So 6th Division moves in, they counterattack the French in the centre and they break the centre. And so now you have a situation where the French left is broken, the French centre is broken, and there's very little left to do. And the, it has to be said, the situation is exacerbated for the French because they end up with three commanders, three different commanders in the space of about an hour and a half. So the story goes from Marmont that he sees what's coming. He sees that Thermia and McCune have marched too far. He notices they've become isolated. This is a guy who thinks he's a marshal of France. He's got things under control. He's got Wellington on the run. Of course he could see what was about to happen. You might have noticed the element of sarcasm in my voice here because he then claims that he was climbing on his horse to go tell in person Thermia and McCune, stop, wait right there, give the others time to catch up, it'll all be fine, don't get ahead of yourself, when he's knocked off of his horse by an exploding British shell. He's certainly wounded. He manages to narrowly avoid having to have his arm amputated. But I'm a bit sceptical about this from Marmont, because with the best will in the world, why would you need to go in person to deliver an order to tell your men to stop? Delegation is key, isn't it, Zach? It's any it sign really of any is. good leader or any manager in any job. Delegation, delegation, delegation. It certainly is. He could have sent an aide, quite frankly, to tell them, look, just stay there. Just stop for a minute and you'll get new orders in about half an hour. He doesn't, either because he doesn't have the opportunity or because he hasn't seen what's coming, he's evacuated off of the battlefield. He plays no further part in the battle. The command should have then devolved on a guy called General Clausel. 
who it just so happens has been wounded by a British artillery shell fragment. There was something about British artillery during this battle that was just on point. So the command devolves on General Bonnet, who incidentally is the guy who's commanding in the centre. He's the one who orders this attack that breaks the 4th Division. Except that then General Bonnet is wounded. And guess what? It's by British artillery. And then Clausel has had his wound attended to. He's come back to the battlefield because he knows that there's a crisis going on. He knows that he's needed. Um, and so he then takes back command. But you have this situation where the French are basically leadless for a crucial hour in which you've got their left flank breaking. You've got this crisis in the centre and that disjointed, fragmented command means that they can't come together and plan a, off the fly, admittedly, a cohesive strategy to deal with what Wellington is inflicting upon them. All that's left for them to do is make a last stand. They basically sacrifice a division. Ferry's uh, division is told to stand there and just fight to the end. And fight to the end they do. Um, they also actually lose a thousand casualties, include, well, a thousand and one to be precise, including Ferry himself, their commander. He's actually cut in half by a cannonball, which is a pretty horrific way to go. But they achieve it. They buy the French just enough time until darkness falls. And that gives them the time that they need to get their army away towards a ford on the river. Wellington doesn't know for sure where the French are going. He sends his men in a different direction to a different ford. Uh, the French actually pull back to a place called Albert de Tormes. They cross over there. Wellington heads for a place called Huerta, which is further to the north. And the French just, just managed to escape his clutches. It's not quite the end of the fighting. There's, there's a, another incident involving Allied cavalry, this time from the King's German Legion, where, guess what? They get carried away. They charge in when they really shouldn't do. They charge squares. Oh, you never charge squares, right? Or you're never going to be successful if you do charge a square. This is the exception that makes the rule, I'm afraid to say. I know, it, it's a bizarre one. So the King's German Legion troopers, they charge in. And what we think happened is that the French just fired a tiny bit too late. And one of these horses ends up falling across the face of one of these squares. So a square is a formation where you point the bayonets out and you load and fire in such a way that there's a hedge of steel around your formation. And then behind that, you've got firepower that's warding off any kind of attack. If you leave it too late, though, then what can happen is that those dead and dying horses and troopers can end up sliding straight into your square or falling on top of it. And then that creates an opening, which if you're good on a horse, you can use to get into the square and then attack it from the inside. And that's exactly what happens. One of these squares is basically taken apart from the inside by the King's German Legion troopers. And then they, the survivors from that square, run off to the next one. The Frenchmen in the next square go, well, I can't fire on these guys. They're my comrades in arms. These are fellow Frenchmen. But mixed in amongst those Frenchmen are KGL troopers. And so what happens is that this second unit ends up being taken apart as they try and let the refugees from the routed square in. And so it ends, it's kind of like a snowballing effect. Um, so on the 23rd of July, you have this incident at a place called Garcia Hernandez. But that then is it, that Salamanca is over. The campaign, or at least that phase of the campaign, is over. Wellington's left regretting the fact that he hasn't managed to completely surround, cut off and crush an army and force it to surrender. But nonetheless, he's won and he's inflicted an incredible blistering defeat on the French. So much so that General Foy describes this as a battle in the style 
of Frederick the Great. Quite some accolades there, Zach. Thank you so much for taking us through all of that. There's something so incredibly viscerally brutal about these great pitched battles from this period in history. Something which, you know, we talk about the the mud and blood and slaughter of the First World War and the, the great armoured offensive and the mechanised battles of total wars of the Second World War and wars that we have today. But they're so rarely in the face of one another to the point where it's it's hand-to-hand fighting. These are, are wars, wars at arm's length. It's about killing people from a, an extended distance, never staring that soldier in the eye or very rarely doing so. Whereas when we talk about battles like this, you know, you're saying that the, if you don't shoot on time, the horses are going to slide into the formation, then they can use that as almost a, a leapfrog to jump into the square and hand-to-hand fighting, slashing down off the horses. I mean, it's truly brutal, horrific stuff. So, well, I guess thank you for bringing that to us and for giving us some some light on this battle. But perhaps we can zoom out from that that brutality for one second and and place the the Battle of Salamanca into its broader, wider context. Why does this battle matter so much for the story of the Napoleonic Wars? There are a few points to make here. One is tied into that quote that I just gave you there from General Foy. You know, this gives the French something to really stop and consider. There can be no question that after this, Wellington has the psychological ascendancy over the French. They're running scared. And we can see that in terms of what happens in the remainder of the campaign. Wellington's able to march triumphantly into Madrid on the 12th of August. He liberates the Spanish capital. That's a monumental propaganda coup. King Joseph, Napoleon's brother, has to pack up all of his stuff and get the hell out of Dodge because he's got nothing left. He's actually got a a tiny force of 15,000 men. Realistically, that couldn't have done anything to stop Wellington. He does the prudent thing and up sticks. So that sends shockwaves in and of itself. The fact that you've got Napoleon's forces, he's not there in person for sure, but Napoleon's forces nonetheless humbled at one end of the continent. Now, at the other end of the continent, of course, Napoleon himself in 1812 has gone into Russia. And this is important to emphasise that had it not been for the disastrous invasion of Russia, the peninsula would have been a very, very different conflict. Uh, there's no denying that. In Russia is where the beginning of the end of the Napoleonic Wars, that's where that chapter is written. But nonetheless, what you then have is a situation where Napoleon has opened up a two-front war. Now, we know from history that two-front wars are never a great idea. It's also key because there is failure at both ends of the continent, and that reverberates. Salamanca sends a shockwave, and all of the other nations of Europe sit up and pay attention. Not Napoleon himself, in fairness. He gets the news of Salamanca the night before he's meant to fight the Battle of Borodino. And he says, well, it doesn't matter because tomorrow I'll decide the fate of Europe anyway. Classic Napoleonic hubris right there. But the fact that he then doesn't achieve success in the Russian campaign amplifies and sends a second shockwave. And the other nations of Europe are not sitting idly by. They notice this and it makes them realise that, look, the French can be humbled. In Spain and Portugal, Wellington's been doing this consistently from 1808. Now it's happening again in Russia. And so you end up with this kind of conversation between the different nations of Europe, where they're looking at this thinking, the end is coming. We can win against this guy if we work together and if we're careful. 
And that becomes the story ultimately at the last few years of the Napoleonic Wars. But just to kind of think beyond the strategic, let's think domestically, this has an electrifying effect back home. There has been, for a number of years, an anti-war sentiment within corners of Britain. People who think, you know what, why don't we just make peace with Napoleon? Perhaps he's not that bad, really. Perhaps we can negotiate with this guy. And ultimately, if we stop the war, it'll be less expensive, we'll be able to trade, and that'll be good for the country. Economic crises are an issue during this period. But the fact that the British are winning, and at Salamanca winning so comprehensively, completely turns that on its head. Suddenly, if you were anti-war, you look like a fool. Why would you pull British forces out of Spain and Portugal when they're doing so well? You wouldn't. So it's egg on the face for the opposition. The public have got something that they can get behind. Here's a battle to celebrate, and celebrate they do. And the British Prime Minister is able to use that to go to the polls. Now, this isn't an era of universal suffrage or even universal male suffrage, and governments don't tend to be monumentally shot in the foot if they do badly in an election, unlike today. But nonetheless, it enables the the Prime Minister, Lord Liverpool, to just kind of consolidate his position because prior to Liverpool, a guy called Spencer Possible had been Prime Minister and he'd been assassinated in the lobby of the House of Commons. So there was instability and there was wariness within government. That election enables Liverpool to solidify his position and then he's in a better position to be able to provide Wellington with the support that he needs. So it helps to re-energise the war effort in that sense as well. But it doesn't all go Wellington's way. And we have to be clear about that because having worked himself into Madrid, I would encourage folks to just pull up their phone and look at a map and then consider the fact that there are still more than 200,000 Frenchmen in Spain at this moment in time in, in August 1812. And Wellington has an impossible problem to try and solve. He's got French forces to the south of him. He's got French forces to the north of him. He's got French forces to the east of him. And that's a massive problem. And it's a problem he can't solve because whichever direction he attacks in, the other guys are going to come around and attack his rear and his lines of communication. And then he's going to be cut off. And then he's got to fight for his life. And he knows that that's not really a situation that he can resolve. He does try to do something with it. He launches a, frankly, slightly pathetic, um, that's a technical term there, uh, siege of Burgos. It goes so catastrophically wrong. They have three siege guns. That gives you an idea of how ill-prepared the Allies are Doesn't sound for like this enough. siege. It's really not enough. In fact, one of them has bits missing, so they call it Nelson. Um, oh, okay. There you go. Yeah. Nothing better than a bit of military humour. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, dark humour, for sure. But that's quite often the way with certain branches of the armed forces. And the siege goes disastrously wrong. They try. They can't knock a breach in the walls because they haven't got the artillery to do so. They then try to blow a mine, but they mine the wrong bit of wall. So they blow the mine, but what they don't realise is that what they've packed the gunpowder around is an old section of wall, which is further forward than the actual wall they're trying to blow. And so they blow this thing. And it does bring part of the wall down, but not anything like the way that it's meant to. The attack is, and the blowing of the mine is meant to happen at night. The force that's sent to do the attack gets lost en route. So the whole thing is complete shambles. Wellington eventually manages to uh, blow a second mine, fight his way into the outer ring of the fortress, but then can't take the inner circle. So on many levels, Burgos is just a, a shambles. And 
whilst he's trying to take the place, the other French forces in the region have finally got their act together. And this is what I mean about the psychological ascendancy that Wellington gains, because they realise that it doesn't matter whether they kind of subordinate themselves to one guy or another, because if they don't work as a cohesive whole, Wellington is going to win and there's going to be nothing they can do about that. So they have to fight combined against him. So these forces converge on Wellington. He basically has to cut and run and properly run. They abandon Madrid. They run for, funnily enough, Salamanca through some not ideal conditions. The weather's starting to turn. It's autumn by this point. And Wellington stands in very late autumn at Salamanca on pretty much the same ground on which he fought back in July. This gives you an indication of just how scared the French are of him by this point. They outnumber him two to one. They don't attack. They finish off what Marmont wasn't able to do. They outmaneuver him and force him back to the Spanish-Portuguese border. So by the end of the year, actually, Wellington is right back where he started. And in some respects, people will say, well, then surely Salamanca's a wasted victory. But like you say, those political repercussions start to lay the scene and to prepare for a much bigger battle that is to come. And if you want to hear all about that, then check out our other episodes with Zach on the life and death of Napoleon, on Wellington, and on the Battle of Waterloo. Zach, thank you so much for your time and for taking us through all of this, and laying a bit of context, actually, to that that latest discovery that we have in the Napoleonic world. Tell us, where can people learn more about the charity that you've established? What, what's the name of it? And also, where can people read more and listen to more of you, Zach? Yeah, so if we get the, the tedious one out of the way first, which is me and my podcast, I do run a podcast on this period called The Napoleonicist, which everybody complains about because nobody has a clue how to spell it. Um, so, so good luck, listeners. Um, where you will hear me whisper on endlessly about this period. And some people are, are kind enough to tune in and actually listen to my witchering. So thank you very much to them. You can also find me on Twitter at ZWhiteHistory. So if you've got any questions off the back of this episode, by all means, drop me a line. Very happy to follow up there. But the, the more interesting one is absolutely the charity, the Napoleonic and Revolutionary Wargraves charity. You'll find details of them pretty much anywhere on social media. We're on Facebook and Twitter at NRWG Charity. And after a very, very protracted process, we are finally launching our membership program. So the way that this organisation works is that you can become a member for £25 a year. And not only are you supporting us in our aims to restore the graves of veterans of this period from 1775 through to 1815, not only will you help us to fund research into remains where they are found, as with this presumed case at Waterloo, but also, and this is the most important element of the charity's work, you give us the ability to start to engage with these museums and secure these remains burials, which is the most important thing. Because when we think about the Great War and, and wars subsequently, there is absolutely no question that you would not put those remains on display. There, there would be a huge outcry if anybody even raised the suggestion. Now, my stance and the stance of the trustees on this charity is that any death in war is a tragedy. And much though I absolutely adore the work of the Commonwealth War Graves Charity for what they do for the period that is their remit, it's a crying chain that isn't an equivalent for other periods. 
So I got together a group of experts of the period, 1775 to 1815, and we focused just specifically on that period, but regardless of nationality, regardless of wing of armed services. So militia, navy, army, engineers, artillery, cavalry, doesn't matter. All are covered. And it doesn't matter if they're French, British, Russian, Prussian, Spanish, uh, American, you name it. If you can prove that they served between those years, 1775 and 1815, we will cover them. We'll restore their grave if they have one. We will uh, see what we can do to get them buried and buried in an appropriate manner. That's what we exist to do. But in terms of perks of membership, not only as a member are you contributing to that goal, you will actually get some small benefits, it has to be said, but benefits nonetheless. So we have an education program. We're going to be doing monthly lectures that people can attend. If you're a member, you can attend for free. If you're a non-member, it's a fiver. So, you know, very quickly you end up recouping that cost. We will run in-person events, training days, things like that. If you're a member, you get a discount to those. And we're also organizing conferences. So we have a massive event, one of the biggest get-togethers of Napoleonic um, enthusiasts, but also experts and academics from this period at the National Army Museum in September. It's called War and Peace in the Age of Napoleon II. It comes off the back of a conference that I ran pre-pandemic that went down really well. And we've got more than 50 speakers coming over three days. Uh, we're going to have a private tour of Absley House. We've got uh, a special event held that's being held at the Household Cavalry Museum. So there's loads going on over the course of those three days. It's going to be a great opportunity for people to come together, learn more about this period, but also kind of celebrate and, and enjoy the fact that for, certainly for us Napoleon nerds, we haven't had the chance to get together and enjoy ourselves for a heck of a long time. Um, so hopefully folks will be interested in all of that. You can find out more, probably wiser either to just Google us, NRWGC or Napoleonic and Revolutionary War Graves Charity or find us on Twitter at NRWG Charity. Sign me up. Thank you so much for your time. Always a pleasure. Thanks for listening. But before you go, I've got a very exciting special offer for Warfare listeners. Over on History Hit TV, we're building the world's best history channel on demand and we want to share it with you. When you sign up for a monthly subscription using the code WARFARE, you'll get two things. You'll get two weeks free, followed by your first three months with 50% off. We release two exclusive new documentaries every week, including my new series, Traces of War. And you'll get access to every episode of our ever-growing podcast network, ad-free. So you can listen to Warfare without the interruptions, but also to all our shows like Matt and Cat on Gone Medieval or Tristan on The Ancients. To sign up, just follow the link in the show notes. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 
And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.